0: Today on Prairie Design Lab, the global reach of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast created with the help of the graduates, students, faculty and allies of the University of Manitoba, home to the most experienced, creative and global architecture faculty in Western Canada. Two of U of M's global grads join me now. One was born in Japan but came here to get his Bachelor's of Environmental Design before heading off to the acclaimed Bartlett School of Architecture at University College London. My other guest got his first two architecture degrees at the University of Manitoba before moving to Japan to get his PhD at the University of Tokyo. My two guests are Jun Shibata of Kengo Kuma and Associates in Tokyo and Will Galloway of the architecture firm Front Office Tokyo. I spoke to Jun and Will early on a weekday morning. Good morning, Jun Shibata in Tokyo, or I should say, good evening to you. Hello there. Yeah, good, good morning and good evening. <laughs> there he and hello, Will Galloway. You But you're not in Tokyo, right? Where are you?
1: Uh, I'm in Toronto.
0: And what are you doing there? Uh, well, I'm, I'm
1: teaching at Ryerson University, and uh, I'm supposed to be going back and forth between Toronto and Tokyo, but with the uh, pandemic going on, it, it became a, a prolonged stay.
0: And what about your practice, Front Office Tokyo? Uh, It's doing okay.
1: We're we're somehow really busy and and, uh, we're taking advantage of all the technology that has emerged in response to COVID-19. So we're actually, we're we're getting through it anyways.
0: I'd like to know more about what attracted you to, to study at the Faculty of Architecture at University of Manitoba.
2: June, why did you come from Japan to study here in Winnipeg? The well, main reason I fly to Canada was to study English. That was, you know, first my reason. And by staying in Canada, Hawaii, and meeting many people, and I learned many things, not only, you know, the design itself, but also other social issues and environmental issues. And then I was quite fascinated with that uh, architecture. So too, I believe that uh, can address those issues in design way. So then I decided to enter to the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. And what year did you come here? 2001. Then I entered the University of Manitoba 2002. The Bartlett School is yep. ranked currently as the best architecture
0: school in the United Kingdom and the second mm-hmm. best architecture school in the world. Why did yep. you decide to go there from University of Manitoba?
2: I was quite interested in that uh, the how the design can change that uh, the way of seeing ourselves to the world and that uh, i saw that uh, the birthright the work can you know change the way of seeing the world from our perspective point of view that school is quite uh, interesting and very experimental school and sometimes they're not simply designing that uh, building but they are more searching some new things and I just wanted to find out what the new things looking at. In what way did the University of Manitoba prepare you for the Bartlett? I, I think that the, the U of M gave me that, that quite broad view, not only focusing on that the architecture itself, but also focusing on that the landscape and you know interior and you know other design field. That was a quite good opportunity for me, and to also see many things before just focusing on that architecture. I think that definitely influenced me to proceed to study at the Bartlett. Will Galloway, what attracted you to the University of Manitoba for two architecture
0: degrees?
1: The honest answer is I I didn't know better. I grew up in Manitoba, you know, in a small town in Brandon. You know, the big city in that at that time was Winnipeg, so, you know, that's, that's just where I went almost to automatically but you know in between the two degrees I I was actually working and living in Japan for a few years and it didn't occur to me at that time that I could actually study in Japan so I did my master's degree at University of Manitoba so that I could finish my professional degree yeah actually that turned out to be a good choice I think in, in hindsight why do you say that I see a lot of people who study in Japan and you do your master's degree and then if you want to go home the issue of accreditation is, is always coming up. I, I would say also, I mean, PhD was really great to do at University of Tokyo, but I, I would say U of M, because of the, the way the program was set up at the time and its, it's very broad outlook, it, it prepared me actually also for, same, same as June said, actually, you know, for next steps. And I'm not sure if that would have been the same in Tokyo. I probably would have stayed on an escalator if, if I had been studying
0: in Tokyo. What do you mean by that Stayed on an escalator? I mean, this is probably true of any
1: school in, in, in the world. You know, once you, you sort of get into a program and then you, you know, the opportunities in front of you, you know, become, they sort of widen, but they also narrow at the same time. You know, who, who your professor knows, who they can introduce you to, and so on and so forth. Uh, University of Tokyo is, is amazing. It's globally connected and so on and so forth. But the way forward after you graduate is generally just a few offices. And I I probably would have just stayed in Tokyo and never moved to London, for instance, because that would have just been the easiest thing to do.
0: Do I have it right that you both teach at university? Uh, Will, you're at Ryerson, is that right?
1: Yeah, I teach at Ryerson and also at at Keio University in Tokyo.
2: Yep, Uh, actually last year I was teaching as a part-time kind of staff. And from actually that tomorrow, I'm teaching at Tagami Women's University. Well, you're starting a new position tomorrow, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Today was my last day for working for Kengo Kuma. How long had you been with Kengo Kuma? Almost like a 15 years. Is this news to you,
0: Will, that uh, June is leaving <laughs> yeah. Kengo Kuma? No, it's amazing
1: news. Congratulations, <laughs> I, I <Thank> guess. You. <laughs> also, also, like, uh, wow, that's a big change.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that the good or bad, I am still, you know, working for Kengo Kuma. I mean, I said that it's the last day today, but it's, like, officially last day, but still... Uh, I'm working for him. So June, when you returned to Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, after the Bartlett, what was it like finding work in a firm in Tokyo? It's a really good question. And uh, since you know I study in Canada, also in London, I had uh, basically several choices to move what pursue my career. Of course one option could be staying in London and I was also interested in moving to the Netherlands. but what I wanted to get, is more actually to build something. Put my consideration to the materiality, that was my interest at the moment. Then I thought that the Kengo Kuma is the one I should go. There's some offer from offices in London and the other countries, but I finally decided to go back to Tokyo and work for Kengo Kuma. He is uh, an acclaimed
0: architect in Japan and around the world, but for those who aren't familiar with him, just remind us about some of his or the firm's most special projects?
2: One of the most famous projects he just completed is National Stadium for Olympics 2020. Well, actually 2021 now, but uh, yes. yeah, that's uh, the yeah, most famous one. The firm faced pretty dramatic challenges with the
0: National Stadium because of budget overruns and the, the need to
2: overhaul the design of the facility? Yeah, that the budget and schedule was very tight because you know the original design was done by Zaha Hadid, and that design was over budget and that, that also pushing the too much the schedule. So then finally the government decided to redo the competition. The Kengo Kuma one, that. Will, you are an immigrant to Japan. How did you find your
0: place in the architecture of Japan?
1: With lots of difficulty, really. I don't know, June probably knows it from the other experience or even going back to, you know, finding your way in Japan is is quite challenging because it's there's lots of cliques who, you know, makes a big difference. And where you studied makes a big difference. I I was kind of lucky that when I um, moved to Tokyo in 2003, I was talking to various professors and and, uh, there was one professor I wanted to study with and he advised me that I don't and instead go to University of Tokyo and and study with a professor there, simply because of the kinds of opportunities that come from graduating from that university, especially as as a foreigner. And I recognized that he was speaking wisdom. It it reaffirmed my choice to go to the University of Tokyo. And he he was completely right, because then graduating from that school uh, reassures clients, first of all. it also meant that if I wanted to teach, uh, I could teach at, at rather good schools in Japan. So that, that's why I could teach at Waseda University and Keio University. Um, and as it happens, all the professors you know, at Keio all come from University of Tokyo. If, if you're an architect, this is very familiar. You know, it's, it's a very small family. Finding your way into that door is, is really important. And so uh, going to University of Tokyo was, was my key to that whole thing. What was it like learning Japanese? Because I'm lazy, it, it, I'm still learning. To be honest, I, I just learned by talking. I never thought I would stay in Japan, and, you know, and then I ended up being there for 25 years. And, and so I was always leaving you know, next week kind of thing. And so I just learned by speaking to everybody. And I, I was really lucky that an office hired me when I, I barely spoke at all, and they spoke no English because I was you know, only 23 years old or something like that, it wasn't so painful. They laughed at me and made fun of me uh, all the time in just the right way that I would remember the, the language. You know, so surprisingly, it was the same as just like you would learn it as an infant, you know, uh, just by, by picking it up. So I, I've got some big gray areas where I don't know the words because it hasn't come up in conversation, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, other than that, it's been pretty smooth. And Joan, how much of your English did you learn in Winnipeg?
2: <laughs> well, i sure. I mean, my English is not good, so difficult to say. But uh, I, I think that uh, like my broken English, but all the people trying to understand myself, that was really helpful when I was a student there. And that all the teacher and professor there really helped me a lot and really influenced. That's one of the reasons I'm trying to become a professor or a teacher at the university at the moment.
0: Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what in Japan they call the Great East Japan Earthquake, which happened almost exactly 10 years ago, which destroyed Fukushima and triggered these tsunamis, killing 15,000 people. That had a big impact on you. I mean, not personally, not that you were living in that part of Japan. There's a
1: little bit of trauma in that, even though I wasn't there. I mean, of course, I was there for the earthquake and it it terrified me, Um, mostly because uh, I was afraid my children at that time, they were in daycare. They they were in buildings that were built in the 60s and and were ready for a seismic upgrade, but hadn't had it yet. Uh, So, I mean, starting with the panic of like, are my children Okay. And then seeing on the news this this tsunami rolling over the the seawalls and just wiping out the coast, it, it's hard to imagine the scale of that disaster. Uh, but then after that, it was amazing because uh, I had just started teaching at Keio University and the at the campus I was in, they're all supposed to be working cross-disciplinary, and, and you know, you know, architects working with whoever, you know, economists or, or climate scientists, uh, and they, they didn't really. But after that. Emergency, they, they really did. And, and so I, I suddenly saw in practice what happens when architects are working with people who know nothing about architecture and, and probably don't even care about it, working together to solve a massive problem. You know, w- whether they succeeded or, or not is, is something you can debate, but that single act of working together was profoundly uh, impactful on I me. Mean, I, I recognize that if we're going to, to build resilience, you know, and and this is a subject that everybody is is probably going to start dealing with more and more and, and you all experience it directly with COVID. You know, our daily lives are now defined by things we didn't expect or plan for. And so my opinion about architecture, at the very least, has been transformed. You know, we need to be more open, more engaged, and we need to plan for stuff that we can't plan for. And how architects learn that. Is you know what education needs to be about and probably what practice is gonna to have to be about too going forward.
0: June, what did you learn in, in your world of the
2: earthquake and the meltdown at the reactor and the horrifying impact on life in Japan? What and how we live, that's we need to reconsider. That was a the big lesson, I think. That easiest way to escape from such a let's say like a natural disaster or the tsunami is you get away from that uh, the seaside right but it's very difficult for people like a fisherman to get away from the the seaside but they coexist with the, the, the sea that's how they live but you know just considering that, that the safety is better to be, you know, mountainside or higher side, but it cannot be done like that way. So, but how we can create that, that safe environment for people like that, uh, people like a fisherman, and you know, have also has good connection to the, the sea that kind of things was, you know, that was a quite big lesson. I mean, not that there's no solution and answer, but then I, I think it's a it's uh, the lesson, I think. It's the same as the, the pandemic at the moment, I think. There's no solution and answer yet how as an architect can respond to this situation. But I, I think it's a big lesson. And then all through the history, why happened like uh, this kind of natural disaster and the pandemic that, uh, you know, architecture paradigm always shift some way. So that's, we need to, start thinking of it. Back in
0: 2017, Will, you co-edited a book uh, called uh, Rethinking Resilience, Adaptation and Transformation in a Time of Change. Mm-hmm. What were the messages in that book, especially that apply to conditions now? To be
1: resilient, you need to have extra capacity sort of built in. So you, you almost have to like de- design into our world, you know, whether this is political or economic or, or architectural, we, we have to have space to maneuver. And I, I think, you know, in the last few decades, we actually copied this Japanese idea, you know, this just-in-time production sort of idea where you, you make stuff and you, you only have enough for the next truckload or for the next thing. That, that kind of mentality is, has pervaded a lot of our life. You know, as soon as you have a disaster, you suddenly realize how tenuous, you know, the supply chains and, and the connections actually are. And so we need to be almost willfully more robust than we can imagine. Uh, in order to have the capacity to to bend or move or shift or pivot, you know, whatever the actual response is, uh, when something unexpected comes up, uh, but we definitely can't plan for just the pandemic. You know, it's, it's, it's just not going to work.
0: In helping people to recover from the impact of the earthquake, were you involved with your university in the Veneer House project?
1: Yeah, I did part of it with uh, Professor Hiroto Kobayashi, and that, that's mostly him, and, and he he's really an uh, amazing, energetic guy. I helped to do fundraising through Ar- Architecture for Humanity, basically. I was there, but I, I won't take credit for it.
0: For those who don't know what uh, Veneer House is, what is it? It's got lots of
1: variations, but uh, the simplest version is is where you you take plywood and you cut it in very specific ways so that when it's assembled, uh, you can have a house, that almost like a flat pack house from IKEA. The point of it, I suppose, is that, especially in cases of disaster, is that right after the disaster, everybody is busy trying to build stuff, reconstruct things. There are no carpenters. You can't get... You know, all these people with expert knowledge. And, and so the, the point of the veneer house is that anybody can do it, but making it as easy as possible to build a shelter uh, out of, you know, the simplest of parts without even nails or, or screws, if, if you don't have them at hand, and no specialized tools.
0: In Japan, they call plywood veneer, is that right? Yeah. And you slide the pieces together with channels that are already cut into the veneer?
1: In the case of Japan and, and actually all over the world, and you know, even in, in Kathmandu, amazingly, there's a, there's a CNC machine. Uh, so the, there's two versions, one where you could do it with, you could cut the pieces with the saw to make those slots to, to connect it. In Japan or where the technology is, is available, they do it with a CNC machine. So it's all cut you know
0: precisely by computer. As a non-architect, I don't know what a CNC machine is.
1: Basically, it's just a drill bit that's attached to a robot arm, a very simple arm. And a, a ro- it's like drawing a line with a robot arm, except instead of with a pencil, it's a rotating drill bit. And the drill bit just cuts holes into the plywood.
0: And it creates very, very precise openings and shapes. June, how did you and your firm react to the horrors that unfolded uh, around
2: Fukushima uh, during that incredible earthquake and tsunami? I mean, as an office working with Kengo Kuma, we did several things. Of course, one is actually we visited, actually we de- did a certain research and what's happening. We try to find out the way we can help support them. Well, we designed the community center for the fundraising for the humanity. And another things is that uh, I-, I think from that the beginning that the Kengo Kuma's office involved that uh, the development. So then we completed the community center. Because it's the nature of Kengo Kuma's office to focus on the that, that design and the craft, we wanted to somehow support that uh, all the craftsmen. So we established, it's called uh, EJP, East Japan Project. It's called EJP. Yes. And we try to collaborate with that uh, craftman from Tohoku area and that... Uh, some designer from all over the world to create some object and uh, art pieces together.
0: Considering that this is your last day with Kengo Kuma, leaving mm-hmm. one of the most acclaimed architecture firms in Japan to head out on your own, mm-hmm.
2: why are you doing this? <laughs> uh, I, I think that, uh, of course, like uh, spending 15 years, I learned a lot. I personally believe that the, some architects' role, that things I try to still proceed further with by myself. So that's the, the reason I'm leaving the, the Kengo Kuma's office. What will be your focus on the kind of architecture and the kind of projects you want to do? Of course, it's influenced by the, the Kengo Kuma. I'm interested in that, the, the material and the, the craft and technology, how these three can get together and somehow help that, uh, let's say not the Tokyo, like a big city, but let's say like a rural area, there's many craftsmen and, you know, tradition, but people feel it's like a normal thing that people don't think that's a value. But once we put the design to it and with that some certain technology, it becomes new value. I, I think that the area also can prosper. What kind of things do you mean that are undervalued? A couple of weeks ago, I visited the metal factory and tried to get uh, some uh, piece of the metal, like a, basically like a garbage of the metal I wanted to get. So I started talking to the, the people from factory. I want to get the, like a garbage, like a metal that you're throwing away to create a building that I told them. then They said, no, no, we don't have such, you know, interesting metal that you're looking for, blah, blah, blah they were like a spending one hour there saying like oh just make the new metal that we can do like a CNC as just a, we just mentioned you know there's a yes. big, lots of technology right so we can make very interesting you know metal out of technology but no no I want to get that just that you know the metal that you're throwing away finally I visit the factory and look around and there's many many beautiful metal but they feel that's a garbage and they don't want to use it but that's mm-hmm. just a design can't change that the way we see things, I think, because people think every day when people are looking at it, they feel it's not valuable things, but when we twist it just a little bit, then, you know, things really become something new and get some value to it. What do you want to build with this scrap metal? Mainly for that, that interior finish, like a wall and ceiling, but we saw that gives some anchor to the area, create some certain connection to that area not simply using like a new material but people can see and feel oh city or the town of that uh, this metal so you know th- that's why connect themselves with uh, the the building and uh, the town. But if you're working with these pieces of scrap metal uh, mm-hmm. they're not manufactured for you they're scrap you have to figure out how to make them work what kind of challenge right. is that? I, I think that's uh, the fun things and that's uh, the you know My interest, I think, how we can transform that non-valuable things to become that valuable. That's, to me, the most creative things happening. That's my interest. Well, I would think that June's values on this synchronize with yours, because I know that
0: you're very concerned about these kinds of things as well. I wish I
1: could say I was doing anything as interesting as that. Uh, We're following the more typical path in that we're looking at using, again, CNC uh, technology to cut um, you know, big walls out of wood and things like that, like to use mass timber construction in order to reduce the, the amount of CO2 just by using timber and so on in, in buildings. Uh, this is something we're just starting to do in, in Canada. It seems to be like it's an idea that's really taking off. It's not so much in Japan, in my opinion.
0: Well, you said recently that we need to hack buildings, cities and culture to move things faster. Why did you say that? The
1: recent uh, evidence of COVID it would probably be the best illustration. You know, suddenly, I mean, so I'm, I'm in Toronto. You know, all, all of a sudden, you see streets that are closed, and you, you recognize that there is a tremendous requirement that suddenly appears, and rather than rebuild our cities, you know. I mean, the fastest answer was just to put up some roadblocks and make sure that people could have social distancing on sidewalks and building cafes into the streets because the interiors no longer work. Those kinds of ad hoc, very fast trials which failed or were completely successful, and you don't know the outcome in advance. It's not planned for. It's all just going you know, by ear almost and then picking up the stuff that's successful. We're kind of lucky to have that example because... Generally, we're going to be having these kinds of problems into the future more and more, you know, with, with climate change and so on. It's just going to come up and, and probably instead of like you know, waiting 20 years for new laws and regulations, it's just too slow.
0: Now, you're living, June, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe, Will, eventually you'll be back there, in the most populous megacity in the world, more than 37 million people. To ask a grand question, what are the main architectural challenges in Tokyo at
2: the moment, this is quite a famous uh, comparison between that, uh, let's say, Tokyo and, let's say, New York or London more. I, I think that the old, like Japan and Tokyo is that uh, like a scrap and build. That uh, means that the old they're going to, you know, scratch the building and they build a new one and keep building, building, building. So there's no history to it, except that the, let's say like a Kyoto and, you know, certain historical area. But Tokyo is not like that. And comparing to the European city or, you know, the States and Canada, they always maintain all those historical building and that's creating the city. I, I, I think that's the big differences and that the big challenge for Tokyo. I wouldn't say it's a bad thing, but I, I think it's, a, you know, how we can have new building but trying to maintain those history and the past is quite an the important theme. In the first episode of this podcast, we talked to Zero Waste Scotland
0: which is an organization there that's really focused on reuse of buildings trying to reduce the carbon footprint by saving the embedded carbon in the buildings and turning those buildings into new things not adding more concrete not adding more transportation to move materials well what do you think of that principle the the zero waste principle
1: It makes perfect sense. The scrap and build concept in in Japan, which which is absolutely running the economy, and it's really hard to stop, I think. Two possible ways to respond. Either we take it as like a a challenge and you should just stop it, uh, which I think is more the European way. You know, if we think about buildings where, you know, components are reused from one building to another. So it's it's more like this, uh, you know, cradle to cradle kind of idea where stuff is just constantly recycled. Maybe scrap and build isn't the problem. It's just how we do it. The positive side of that whole equation, at least in my opinion, is that it means that if we need to change the city, so I'm doing some research on this now, right now about in any given neighborhood, it's something between 20 and 30% of a neighborhood is going to be swapped out you know, in 10 years or something like that. That's a huge amount. If you suddenly want to say every house should be sustainable or growing food, you know, inside it, you know, so it suddenly becomes like a, a little mini farm and you want to make a community that's a farming community you know, in the dead center of Tokyo, you know, you can't really do that just by adding stuff onto those buildings. You, you need a new kind of building. If you have a process in place where change is like constant, you know, this churning, then we should sort of just uh, take advantage of that and, and you can actually swap out to Tokyo for a better one.
0: When will we see you two back in Winnipeg?
2: Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe June could answer that. Just I can say it's nothing in winter.
0: <laughs> oh, not? Because oh, you know Winnipeg winter, yes? Exactly, yes. I would love to help to organize a reunion for you two back in Winnipeg. Thank you for taking the time out of yeah, your pleasure. very busy life to talk to us today on Prairie Design Lab. Yeah. I'm very grateful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It's
1: great uh, also to hear your voice again. It's, it's yeah. been a while. So that's very nice. It's a very yeah. familiar voice.
0: Yeah, yeah, June, I was on the radio here for a long time. uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, nice to meet you. Bye-bye, see you. Will Galloway is the owner of Front Office Tokyo. He also teaches at Keio University in Tokyo and at Ryerson University in Toronto. He joined us today from Toronto. June Shibata is just leaving the high-profile Tokyo architecture firm Kengo Kuma & Associates to start his own firm. He teaches at Sagami Women's University, just southwest of Tokyo. Both are graduates of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, faculty, students, and worldwide allies of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information about us, visit our website, prairiedesignlab.com. Special thanks today to Professor Jason Chan. I should mention, too, that Professor Jason Shields composed and recorded our musical theme. You can listen to us on Spotify and on Apple and Google Podcasts. If you like, please subscribe. You can hear us also on the radio on UM UMFM at 101.5 FM in Winnipeg on Wednesday mornings at 11.30. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.